Hi, I'm Talia. I'm 16 and I go to Mount Carmel Christian School. Um, yeah, here goes. Um, like a lot of Christians, I was brought up in a Christian home. Although always knowing about God and how much he loved me was a good thing, it didn't make the decision to become a Christian any easier. Growing up, I did the whole kids' church thing. I went every Sunday and heard all the normal Bible stories. I also went to a Christian school and heard about Jesus there. The problem with all this was that I almost became immune to the real story behind the stories. God was always there and I always knew about him, but I never knew him. As I grew older, I started to get off track. I started swearing at school and my grades started to drop. And I just didn't really care where I was going or how I was going to get there. At this time, I started high school. I was so excited. I thought about how good it was going to be. All the parties I could go to without my parents knowing where I actually was going to be. Um, this was going to be awesome. But I got into a bad crowd and things started to get worse. My grades dropped from A's to C's and my language and attitude started to get really bad. But at home, most of the time, and at church, I was still the good little girl. By the end of the year, my parents were sick of my bad grades and um, decided to move me to another school. So the next year, I started at Mount Carmel. I was so angry. The last thing I wanted to do was go to this school. I had heard how weird these people were and did not want to become one of them. But although I didn't want to, I had to. The teacher I had didn't like me and I didn't like him. My attitudes toward him and the school were terrible. Um, he didn't respect me, so I wasn't going to respect him. But that didn't really work for me. After a year and a half of the teacher I hated, my attitude started to change. Because of this difficult and annoying person who I just didn't get along with, I started to grow up. Then in 2006, my grandfather was diagnosed with bowel cancer. He told me not to worry. He hadn't won the lottery yet, so he wasn't going to die. For a little while, I actually thought he might pull through. But one night, halfway through my netball training session, my sister came to pick me up. But I had got worse very quickly. <clears throat> I became angry at God. How could he take Pa away from me now, just when he was starting to get better? Pa wasn't a Christian at the time, and if he died, I would never see him again. Slowly, Pa got worse until he was barely able to talk. The last thing he ever said to me was, I'm going to heaven. Three days later, he died in his bed with his family around him. That night, I cried and cried. I cried out to God. And then all of a sudden, there was this calm feeling. All I could think about was everything that was going to be okay. God told me that Pa was safe and that I would see him again. The next term at school, I started talking to a friend of mine. He taught me about things about the Bible that I didn't know before. He then learned that I wasn't actually a Christian although I always had the right answers for most of the questions. He also learned that I didn't really know that much about God. One day, after a very long talk, he asked me, Talia, who is God and where is he? I looked out the window and plainly answered, he's the big guy out there. My friend then helped me to become a Christian. This wasn't an easy process. It involved a lot of letting go. It wasn't easy and I had to learn to trust God and trust is a thing that I'm not very good with. But after a lot of time and struggle, I let go. I asked Christ to forgive my sin and to come into my life and change it. It has been one of the hardest things I have ever done in my whole life and sometimes I don't know if I really want to be doing it. But when I get through those hard times, I know I wouldn't want to live my life any other way. God has changed me a lot through all this. 
He has made me see things in a way that I never could before. But that doesn't mean I don't stuff up anymore. I do, a lot. But I know that even when I do and when I fall, that God is always there to pick me up and get me back on track. Um, two Bible verses that have really stuck out at me are John 14:27, where Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I don't give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And Job 25, 1-3. God is powerful. All must stand in awe of him. He keeps his heavenly kingdom in peace. Can anyone count the angels that serve him? Is there any place that God's light doesn't shine? Thanks, Talia. And now Lisa Lynch is going to come. Thanks, Lisa. I'm just going to start. I grew up in a Catholic family and was baptised as a baby, probably mainly to keep my grandma happy. Throughout primary school, I went to a Catholic school, and on Sundays, my mum was the children's liturgy teacher, which is kind of like Sunday school, at our local church, where we sang, this is the day that the Lord has made, and then ate donuts. <laughs> By high school, I'd started to realise that the world wasn't perfect, and that people, and life in general, can hurt you really deeply. I hated my parents for not protecting me from life's miseries, and felt that they didn't love me, and were letting bad things happen to me to punish me for being bad. I knew deep inside that I wasn't all bad, that there was some goodness inside of me, but to others I was just the evil kid because my behaviour, which bad doesn't exactly do justice, was my way of reacting to bad things that were happening to me. I also knew that if I let anyone see the good side of me, they would search for a reason behind my behaviour and sharing my painful secrets would have just been too hard. My high school years, therefore, were dedicated to building up my bad dude reputation so that no one could get close enough or care enough to hurt me. In Year 9 at Mount Carmel, the principal at the time, Mr Hoogan, was yelling at our class and he said, I'm going to heaven, I wonder how many of you can say that. Being the evil child, I felt it my duty to go and tell him that he was very up himself for thinking that he was good enough to get into heaven, to which he replied, I'm not up myself, I'm up Jesus. <laughs> I was stumped. Although my evil exterior was nonchalant about it all, inside I was screaming, whoa, that makes so much sense, I want that. I really wanted to secretly find out more about this personal relationship thing that people at Mount Carmel spoke of having with Jesus. They said they were friends with God. It was huge to me. At Mount Carmel, I was also made to read the actual Bible every day. In it, I heard that Satan and hell were actually powerful and real, and I wanted desperately to be rescued from them, especially because I knew that they were exactly what I deserved. I also realised that if I climbed the ladder of good works, as I had been taught, that I was in essence saying to Jesus, yeah, thanks for dying and all, but that's not actually good enough to save me. I need to do more myself. Sorry. Through all of these new ideas being introduced into my life, I came to realise that there's a dude out there who actually loves me with no strings attached. All I have to do is accept his love and he will love me and protect me and won't have ulterior motives and won't hate me if and when I mess up. A real dad. I just didn't know how to accept him and couldn't ask because I had my evil reputation to uphold. A fair way into year nine, the Gideon's people came to Mount Carmel with little red Bibles that had instructions in the back of how to accept Jesus. I was so excited, internally of course, but got kicked out before they gave out the Bibles. <laughs> I remember being completely devastated, shattered, resigning myself to never knowing Jesus for real and reprimanding myself for ever having thought that I was good enough for Jesus to want as a child. I moped back into the classroom after everyone had left and found, sitting on my desk, a little red Bible with Lisa written in the front page. I was ecstatic, and the second I got home, I pulled out that little Bible, read the instructions, and asked Jesus to come into my life and to be my friend and saviour. After this, I read my little red Bible every day, yearning to find out more and come even closer to Jesus, my special friend. I couldn't tell anyone of my decision, however, 
until I attended a church camp that Christmas and felt empowered to live and put into practice all that I had read in my Bible. After this camp, I was initially on fire for Christ, not ashamed at all, telling everyone about him and changing my whole life to what I thought would please him. Although this was tough and I was scared of what some people would think of me, it all went down fairly well and life kind of turned easier. I got unexpelled from Mount Carmel just for sharing with the teachers that I was a Christian. No proof necessary. <laughs> life was all working out so well for me and I didn't realise then that life could still be really painful when you had Christ living inside you. After all, this is the guy who hung on a crucifix just for being himself. He knows pain. My newfound values, based on Christ, did not fit with the values held dear by my dad's family, however, and this ultimately led to the demise of any form of relationship between myself and the rest of that family. I started to question why God would do this to me and make my family hate me when I was just trying to please him. I was in a lot of pain, which my so-called friend Jesus wasn't stopping, so I sought what I thought was healing from other sources. I had a lot of fun for a lot of years until I realised that these medicators I was using to deal with the hurt in my life were just deepening and adding to my pain. When I stopped using these methods of healing, however, I felt like I was back to where I had been initially, lonely, unloved and unworthy. But now I was also mortified and incomprehensibly remorseful, having ruined so many people's lives on my road to self-fulfilment. This made me realise that these emotions had been with me the whole time but that I had been numbing them with the way I was living my life. I looked back on my 21 years of anger and fear and realised I needed to put my trust back in Jesus, that friend I once knew. Since making this decision, I feel I've come a long way in realising that Christ has helped me grow into the adult that I now am and that with his help, I can take responsibility for making things better in my life as opposed to moping and playing the victim all the time. I know I'm still going to face struggles in life, but I also know that any pain I feel is not caused by Jesus and that going through hard times with him by my side makes anything bearable. Being a Christian to me is not about what you do or don't do, but is about the cleansing and truly healing relationship you have with Jesus Christ, who loved every one of us so much that he died for our sins so that we don't have to. This gives me hope in you every day. As Romans 5.10 says, For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? The end. Well, just before they go now, let's pray. God, thank you. Uh, thank you for the testimonies we've heard. And we just pray that you would strengthen them as they now make this public declaration. You're a good God. And we praise you for all that you're doing in their lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. How are you doing, Talia? Oh, you're not too bad. <laughs> I had baptisms this morning, and I know it was warmer than this water right now. <laughs> anyway, thanks, Steve, mate, for filming baptistry up. Um, Talia, it's been great to hear some of your story, you know what I mean, and how, how Jesus has become real in your life. Now, I'm just going to ask you a couple of questions about you know, your faith, okay. and uh, you answer as you will. Yeah. Um, do you... Uh, repent of, you know, do you turn away from all the ways that uh, you've rebelled against God, ignored him as king of your life? Do you turn away from all that and put your faith in Jesus? Yeah, I do. Right. Forgiveness of sins in Jesus, hey? Yeah. <laughs> and do you promise um, with God's help, empowered by his spirit, to live every new day? as a follower of his for the rest of your life? I do. I do, that's quite big, that's great. Yeah. yeah. Well, upon this, your profession of faith in Jesus Christ, I'm gonna baptize you now in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. to hear your story too and um, to yeah, hear parts of the journey you've been on 
you know, it's absolutely amazing. Testimony to God's grace in your life. I ask you some questions too. Answer them if you like. Um, so same, Lisa, like for you, do you turn away from, you know, the ways, uh, the heart, the mind, the ways that you've rebelled against God in the past? And do you turn now and, and put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of all your sins, both now and forever? I do. That's great. And do you promise, uh, you know, to, with the help of God's Spirit, live each new day with His help, guiding you in your life for the rest of your life for His glory? Yeah. Great. Well, upon this, uh, your declaration of faith in Jesus Christ, and I baptize you in the name of the Father, uh, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. How exciting. Why don't we just give God the glory for what he has done in these girls' lives. Let's stand and sing, How Great Is Our God. Great. Well, just before I uh, start the message, I just want to hand out a couple of little certificates to Tales and uh, Lisa. So if you guys want to come up, come, come around or something. Um, Talia, Lisa. Um, I just want to pray for them again as well. It's such a massive thing, this journey. Um, that we go on and that these guys are, you know, pretty close to the beginning, um, give or take five years, um, but it'd be great to pray when for God's continued blessing on their life. So let's pray. Oh, Father God, we just um, want to ask that your spirit would really continue to uh, lead in God, Talia and Lisa. Uh, Lord Jesus, overwhelm them by your spirit, we pray, and empower them to live for your glory. Father God, establish them in your word more and more as each new day goes forth, Lord. Enable them to obey you in every respect, Father God, that, so that you are glorified, uh, Father God, so that they can live life to the fullest. And um, thanks so much for their testimony and their, their courage tonight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Great. Well, tonight um, we, we're beginning a four-part series looking at mission. Uh, and the hope is to spend some time thinking about what, you know, in our desire to live for God and to help people come to faith in Jesus and the mission that God's given us, what are some key uh, components for us to think about, to kind of add to our mission of life? Um, so that tonight we're going to be looking at mis- mission and pursuing justice. Uh, next week it'll be mission and pursuing, pursuing hospitality. And it's going to be a great week. We've got... Uh, uh, global interaction team coming up and Mark Holt's preaching and there's going to be uh, some young people sharing stories and uh, kind of panel forum and all that sort of stuff. It's going to be absolutely brilliant. And then pursuing genuine friendships and then pursuing proclamation as well. So get along, uh, get along the church for the next four nights. It'll be, uh, from four Sunday nights, it's going to be great. But tonight, pursuing justice. There's a massive problem, isn't there? If you look in the world, there's a massive problem of, of injustice in our world. Um, I've just recently been to the Northern Territory and just one example of injustice is um, how the majority of uh, Indigenous Australians uh, live today. Um, so from the outset of the white culture coming into Australia, slowly removing power from our Indigenous people so that today... They're a shell of what they used to be. I went to this little community called Yarralan. Um, maybe a couple of hundred Aboriginal people live there. And um, I just went there from a, a nearby cattle station just to, because I, I just wanted to go for a bit of first-hand exposure. And I got to Yarralan and I met this guy called Tim and he's there as part of the uh, intervention order going on currently. And um, he shared some things that kind of just um, blew me away. And one of them was... I can't remember the time frame, but he said, you know, in the last recent time, there have been three attempted suicides. It's kind of bad enough. Um, And he goes, the youngest one was a a five-and-a-half-year-old girl. A a five-and-a-half-year-old girl attempting suicide. That's wrong. And uh, after this guy fell told me that 
five and a half year old kind of communicated something like that she'd been uh, molested in the shower at some point. That's wrong. Gets me pretty angry. Uh, and you go there and there's this uh, spirit of depression in the place. And I know it's not all bad. I'm not trying to say it's all kind of pain for the people at this community, but there was just this really tangible spirit of depression there. Um, there's a place, it's a dry community, so you can't drink in the community. As you come into the community, there's a fence and there's a cattle grid and it's just like, kind of like no more alcohol from this point. And our friends uh, that I met up there said, oh, they call it the Green Gate. And it's called the Green Gate because that's where you see the ground littered with VB cans because everyone drinks at this gate before they go into the community. And um, it's just, you think of it and you go, why? Why do these, do the people here just so need this alcohol? I was pretty um, shaken up by it and kind of changed a little bit. And then on Thursday night, it's not just Indigenous Australia, because on Thursday night, if you watched ABC at about 8.30, there was a show called uh, The Salvation Army put together about this youth refuge in Sydney called Oasis. And in this documentary, you saw the lives of youth, homeless, uh, you know, kind of grappling with heroin addiction and alcohol abuse and, and ice um, habits as well. And you just look at them the first time, you look at them, you think, yeah, man, these guys are just the bottom of society, no compassion, whatever. And, and as the documentary continued, you'd see how um, they kind of like come down out off their drug abuse and you start to see a person. And you start to hear about their story and how they just have just been born into this really average life. And it's kind of like their history has shaped their reality now with their abuse of their parents or whatever. And I just go, that's just unjust. That's just, well, that's just not right. And then you look across the whole world. Now, you don't have to look in Sydney, do you, for that, by the way? Because you can just look around here and we have people in our community who work with people who are like that, youth who are just look like they've got no hope and just going to end up dying really soon. Then around the world, the problem, our church has been trying to help out and inspired by Mark, Mark Docking to put uh, latrines into the slums of Nairobi. Just like, why is there slums? That's wrong. That's unjust. And whether it's pharmaceutical companies, you know, holding back drugs from people suffering from AIDS or whether it's, you know, the Chinese government refusing to acknowledge human rights, uh, human rights abuse of the people in Tibet, you just see it, this injustice. It's a massive problem in our world. Now, when we think about mission, what does God call us to do when we say yes to following Jesus? When you stand before people and you say, oh, I love Jesus, I'm living for you, which is many of us, what is... Our view, where does injustice fit into that? I think the question for us to dwell on a bit tonight is, what's God's attitude to injustice? What does God think about all the suffering in the world? What sort of impact does injustice have on the very heart of God? Then the following question is, for those of us who have surrendered our lives over, given our lives to live God's way, do we share the same heart? Do our actions then vindicate our hearts? Well, picking a passage, it's Isaiah 58. When I look at it and it's Israel and what's some stuff going on for, for Israel or for Judah... And I look at these people and we're trying to glean some ideas of how God views injustice. Here's some context just before we get cracking into it. So here's this Isaiah. He's a prophet. And he's speaking the word of God from uh, the time that King Uzziah started to, uh, time that King Uzziah died in about 740 BC, through the reigns of uh, Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah which is up to about 687 BC. Work out how many years that is for yourself, if you like maths. During the time that Isaiah is speaking on behalf of God, um, 
the people have been, God's people have been torn into two kingdoms. Northern, called Israel now, and the southern kingdom called Judah. So in Isaiah ministered to the kings of Judah. In the preceding chapter, preceding chapter 58, so all these chapters beforehand, the time has been marked by all these big events. So we've got um, Israel and Judah kind of like warring with the surrounding nations. We've got in the, the chapters preceding, Isaiah speaking when the northern uh, kingdom, the southern kingdom, they are warring against each other. Then we've got the complete smashing of both um, uh, parts of the kingdom of God, the, the country of God, if you like. And then we've got the forced removal of both um, Israel and Judah into exile and exile for Judah in Babylon. And then we have the release of Judah from exile back to the land of Judah. So it's believed that chapter 58, it's written in a time when Judah has returned from exile, been away from God for a long time, and now they're back in their land. So they're practicing their religion. They've felt a long absence from being in the presence of God. They long for the blessings of God to return to them, and so they're seeking God. But things, as we're going to see, just aren't quite right. But they're seeking God is in the essence at the start. So Isaiah 58, if you can turn there with me if you have your Bibles. If not, just listen in. Just reading from verse 2 to 3a, or the first part of chapter verse 3. This is God speaking. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? They're seeking God, they're fasting. You know, they're fasting before God because they're earnestly seeking after his presence in their life, denying food. It's a common way that you read about in the Bible that people long for God. They're acknowledging they need him. It says they're humbling themselves before God, but all is not as it seems. We read that, you know, God's saying, they seem eager to know and worship me, to be spiritual. They seem eager for God to come close to, me, to them by their way of fasting and bowing. They seem eager. They seem humble. Yet they're not. So as we read from first, keep reading from verse 3, God says, Yet on the day of your fasting, if you're seeking me, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I've chosen, only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Seems like they've... uh, compartmentalise their faith. They've compartmentalised their faith in God on the one hand and on the other hand, their relationship with people, their fellow countrymen. So they get really spiritual on the one hand, like, oh Lord, I'm not eating for you. I bow now and submit my life to you. I long for you, only you, Lord. Please come close to me, lead me, bless me, O great God. And then on the same day, they do as they please, not as God desires, ignoring and even engaging in injustice. The person who comes to the temple and says, I love you, God, and sings all the right songs and you know, says all the right words, bows and looks sincere and 
spiritual, and then act the other way in the rest of their week. And God says in verse 1, Isaiah, shout it aloud, don't hold back, raise your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. It's impossible. It's impossible to be truly religious and socially indifferent. God here is pouring out his anger and frustration at the equivalent of the one-day-a-week Christian. For God, when a person uh, gives their life to following him, or put it another way, when a person makes their life mission about uh, living for God, their love and service to God will be seen in how they love and serve people in as much as it's seen in the way they, you know, love and serve God in a church service or at the temple meeting. For God, true faith will be seen in a life lived in obedience. Now, when it comes to the question, what does God think about injustice? You know, what's his heart on injustice? We can learn a lot from that, from what Isaiah is told to say to the people of Judah. You see, if he cared little for it, he would say that it's possible for the people of uh, Judah to love God and not love people. He would say, I love it that you praise my name and ask me to do things for you. I don't care that you forget about the poor and the oppressed. I don't really care about that. It's not a problem to me. I just like it that you say you love me. But this is not what he says. He says, You can't truly worship me without doing something about injustice, both in your own life that you cause and in the world around you. You see, God actually hates injustice. He hates it because it's not just. It's not right. God, by nature of being good and right and just and perfect, when he sees his very image being defamed, his image being neglected or oppressed, when he sees his good creation being dragged through the mud, he hates it. God hates injustice because he's just and he deeply values his image, his people. God loves justice. He loves people. That's his heart. That's his view of justice. It's impossible to be truly religious and socially indifferent. So, Some analogies. What sort of footy player are you if you love playing but never play? What sort of cyclist are you if you say you love riding bikes but you never ride? What sort of political activist are you if you can talk about the problems of government to your party friends but never write a letter to your local MP? What sort of gardener are you if you talk up your love of gardening, your great tools? Yes! but you never go into the garden. If we profess to know God and are learning more about what his heart is, if our heart is being shaped in that process to become more like God's, our heart will begin to be broken with the things that break God's heart and will be called, will be moved into action. It's impossible to be truly religious and socially Indifferent. Let's keep reading from uh, verse 6. Is this, God goes on, don't do that, do this. Is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry? And to provide the poor wanderer with shelter. When you see the naked, to clothe him. And not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn. And your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you. And the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call. And the Lord will answer. You will cry for help. And he will say, here am I. 
If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Isaiah, on behalf of God, is saying to Israel, to Judah, man, you wonder why you're not receiving the blessing of God? You wonder why you're not experiencing uh, the presence of God in your life? It's because you somehow, you think you'd be truly religious, longing for me to draw near and socially indifferent. It doesn't work that way. Now, true fasting, truly seeking me, will see you move to action regarding dealing with some of the injustice in the world. God's desire is we get this image of a person, you know, a whole people, a community of people that is actively doing away with injustice, the injustice that they themselves cause, so we, we hear and hear, it says, bring an end to oppressing people. Stop pointing the finger. Stop the malicious talk. Do away with the injustice that you cause. And then it goes on, it's like, and not only that, but look around you. Look around in your own community. Community of faith, look around beyond that. And then we hear this word, I just love this bit, it says, spend themselves. In behalf of the poor. Spend yourself. That's a strong word, isn't it? We've got some poor people out there. Are you spending yourself to feed them, to clothe them, to loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to break every yoke? Do we? Do, do these people here, are they spending themselves like that? So God's desire is for a people to be not socially indifferent at all, when a person, when a community puts their faith in God and seeks to live a life that is pleasing to God, a natural part of their mission is to pursue justice. True religion, true faith in God is pursuing justice. And the sentiment is then echoed some 600 years later in a follower of Jesus. With James, as he declares, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead too. True faith in God involves pursuing justice. Question we've got to ask ourselves is does my faith in God involve pursuing justice? How do we go? Perhaps not a 24 hour day thing, but does your faith, does my faith involve pursuing justice? And when I see a homeless person, when I see myself acting with injustice in how I treat people, when I see a person in need of God or of food or shelter or friendship or help in standing against oppression or they've got no money, do I pursue justice? Do we pursue justice for that person? Locally or overseas, do we pursue justice? A little bit or a massive amount, do we pursue justice? We're all going to understand that if we profess to have faith in Jesus, if we have answered the call in our lives to follow him, then part of our life's mission is pursuing justice. It's the natural outworking of true and genuine faith. Now, at this point, I want to make a slight tangent. Please bear with me. I, um, I speak to a lot of people uh, in my role as, as a youth young adult pastor here. And when I speak to them, my heart's always to encourage people as they seek to follow Jesus. Um, that's good, isn't it, that your pastor tries to do that? Um, to each day, you know, to see people come to follow Jesus a bit more, you know, to be more engaged with prayer and listening to God and speaking to God, to read the word more regularly, to, you know, just journey with God in life. Quite often this question pops up or this issue for the person and it's an issue that's like, what am I called to do? And I think lots of us uh, can be often confused about that question. What am I called to do? 
And it seems that sometimes this confusion kind of uh, paralyzes people. You know, that they're kind of like, what am I supposed to do? I don't know. I don't want to this or that, whatever, and just kind of don't move forward. Um, and just in the last week, um, while I've been writing this message, this thought's been crossing my mind of uh, there being a couple of levels to this sense of God's call in your life. And um, please listen carefully and correct me if any heresy pours forth at this point. Um, it's like the call. There's a call on a micro level and a macro level. Already sounds good, doesn't it? The micro level, is my take is that it's God's call on a person's life at a really specific level. So the micro level of God's call, God's taken into account the individual specific gifting. You know, kind of, you know, specific gifting and what your passions are in life. Something you know, something you don't know. Takes into account your life experience that's formed you up to this point. And God's got this micro call in our lives that takes all this into consideration and then places you in a position that only you can do, this specific complement of ways that you can serve God and his kingdom. Micro, this micro sense of call. And I reckon that at this level, I think we often struggle with this. Um, And I think that we're a bit confused sometimes and what God says is daily trust in me and obey me and just journey with me and I'll reveal that to you in time. At times, this journey, the micro call, understanding it, where it's going, whatever, it's quite frustrating because we don't know. All we know is that God calls us to journey with him. Now, God's macro call on our lives is different. It has to do with God's general call for every follower of Jesus. The things that every follower of Jesus is called to do. This includes things like loving God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. It includes um, loving your neighbour as much as you love yourself. And in that, the second part, you've got sharing the good news. You know that people can have their sins forgiven through faith in Jesus. And it includes pursuing justice in the world we live in. So on the micro level, you might be confused. I might be confused. And at times, and you probably know that. You probably look at me now and go, that guy's confused, right? But you might be confused over what God is calling you to do at the micro level. But on the macro level, there is no confusion. There is no confusion at this macro general level of God's call in your life. So on one hand, you can be totally confused and grappling in the dark, seemingly following Jesus, saying, God, what do you call me to do? You know, like, why am I studying this? Or why am I working here? I'm not sure if I should be working here in this town. Why do I live in this town? And should I be somewhere else? And you could be confused about that. But at the exact same time, you have no confusion about God's macro, God's general call on your life as a Christian. True religion, true faith in God involves pursuing justice. Can't be confused about that. Well, in writing this, I got to this point and went, right, eh? I wonder what prevents us from pursuing justice. So if we know it's this God-given mandate, what's kind of holding me back here? Um, at Soul Survivor a couple of weeks ago, yeah, Joel enjoyed it. I um, heard a guy called Stephen Said. That's his name. I didn't want to say Stephen Said Said, because that'd be confusing. Anyway, Stephen Said did this little exercise. Very, very good. I want to just do it with you for now. You have to imagine something. (laughs) Here we go. Uh, Can't do that. Anyway. Imagine for a moment, right now, where you're at, kind of block out everything. Maybe you want to close your eyes and concentrate. Forget about everyone else around you. Imagine for a moment that you... Value people um, more than you do other things in your life. So God's at the top, definitely, but beyond that, under that, beyond that, under that, um, under God, you imagine you value people more than you value everything else in your life. Really try and imagine it. Block away everything else. Imagine that's you. Now, question, what would you do differently? Like, fair income, like if you did value people more than anything else, how would you do life differently? 
I reckon things would change. Things would radically change. It would in my life. I reckon everything we did and said and, and thought would always be weighed up, do or not do, based on the criteria, you know, is this going to really serve a person? Is this really going to do the right thing by a person here? Is this going to honour that person? So, like, you'd be going, okay, will it serve the person? Will it honour them? Will it help the person? Yeah, okay, then I'll do it. Or will it not serve and honour and help that person in life? Then I won't do it. I reckon it would completely revolutionise the way we do life. If we value people more than we value other stuff in life. Now the question is, what do we really value in life? What do you value in life? What do you really care about? What do you spend your time trying to do? Now if I'm perfectly honest with you, for me this is the order. First, fill. Second, God. Probably should be around the other way. At times it is, but it kind of goes like this. And then after that, um, it would be my family. And then, fill. Fill. Fill, 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 fill. Phil, stop for the point of the exercise, other people. I reckon, I know I care for people, like I really do, but I think if I'm really honest with, you, with, my, with myself and with you here tonight, I reckon it's kindly order. So if I think about, I want to buy a house, man. That's me. I want to find some ways to relax and enjoy my life. It's Phil again. I want to work out how I can spend my money, you know, be generous with it, but also like, you know, have a bit of fun because life's got to be about fun too. You know, play golf, Phil. Do some fishing, Phil. Read a book, Phil. Listen to some music, play some music, Phil. Phil. Am I just the only one that thinks about, you know, myself that much? I probably am, but you know what I mean. Like, do you? Other people tends to be at the end of my thinking. And I think for the majority of us, that would be true. For the majority, caring for ourselves, looking after number one, that takes the majority of our time. Now, some people, some of us here tonight, might be fixated on making money, on building up your empire of material possessions and having all the fun games and toys that you can grab. But at the heart of the matter, it's about you. That's why you do it, because you care and value yourself. We focus on ourselves. Now, let me just say, it's not wrong to love and focus on ourselves. In fact, God commands it. So if you're not doing it, get onto it. But Jesus, in reply to this question, um, what's the greatest commandment of God? He says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. Now, some of us, Maybe over familiar with the text, and it creates in us a kind of a ho hum. Heard that before. Wait for the next interesting point, Phil. Kind of thinking. But we can only be seriously challenged by that verse. People, let's love ourselves. Let's care for ourselves as much as we can. God commands it, but then He says, love other people the same way. Now, if by chance you're thinking to yourself, I haven't got any more time in the week to think about loving other people. I haven't got any more time in my week to think about pursuing justice. Now, if this is what you're thinking, there's a fair likelihood that you are spending too much time, sorry, loving yourself and not enough time loving other people. We might be doing things that appeal that they're not about loving us. But if you honestly dig deeper to why you do the things that you do, I think you'll find, you'll find that it's yourself at the bottom of it. God says, value people like you value yourself. Love your neighbour like you love yourself. Pursue justice. And let me just say, it's not unattainable. It's not something just to talk about and go like, yeah, yeah, great challenge. Can't do that. 
No. It's not even something that you can uh, come to God and kind of debate with him about the validity if, if you should love other people like you love yourself. God's just saying, love your neighbour as you love yourself. Kind of the end, really. True faith involves pursuing justice. Now, maybe um, for you, none of that holds you back. Maybe it's not that uh, you know, you're, you're not concerned about other people. Um, maybe it's um, you think that you don't know what to do. Okay, so you're going, I really want to love people and pursue justice, but I just don't know what to do. Now, I think this is probably a secondary issue because if we truly wanted to pursue justice, I reckon we'd find a way. Just like when you really value or you want a toilet or you need to use a toilet, huh? you'll find a way to find one of those things. I love them. Got to find them. Anyway, it's not there. I was going to go somewhere weird. Right. But anyway, I understand that we, we need prompters. So here's a few random questions that I thought of. First question for you to think about. If you write notes, do it. If you don't, just try and remember. Take one of these if it helps. Question, who is around you already? Who is around you already? So friends you have, acquaintances, are there people you regularly see that with a simple decision to act, you could make a difference in their life? You could start to pursue more justice. So who is around you already? Start here. Next question. What injustice do you see? Now, I can say that, hey, we know there's a lot of rubbish going on in the world. We know the stuff's going on because we live in a global community. But what do you really see? Like, is there something in the mix that, when you, it just stands out to you? Like, God, like, Lord, why is that there? Like, that's kind of plaguing me. Everywhere I see, I see <clears throat> that thing there. Think, is there something like that for you? that makes you more frustrated or more angry that it's there. And then focus on that area. Well, be that God's just given you the heart for that thing. So who's around you already? What injustice do you see? The next one is, what organisations do you know of that seek to make a difference? And maybe those ones that you might share an affinity with, that you actually think, oh man, that is a cause I could just pray for and give my money to and give my time to. And there's so many, like there's so many organisations seeking to right injustice in the world. A few, Baptist World Aid, through, run through the, part of the Baptist church make an impact in the world. World Vision, TIA, organisations that focus on the refugee. Even in our local church, we've got ministries that are seeking to correct injustice in the world. So I've got Food Bank, you can come and give food. You can just say, I'm going to give every week. I'm going to give like X amount of dollars. I'm just going to fill that basket to overflowing myself every week. That will create a little interesting um, logistics affair. Try it out. It would be great. Um, Community days, mustard seed counselling, kids ministry, youth ministry. Not to mention what could be on your heart right now that hasn't been born yet in this church. Like a passion that you've got that's not here and you could realise your potential in that way. So who's around you? What injustice do you see? And what organisation do you kind of deal with? Start your own. And the next one would be do some research. Because if you just think there's not much out there and you're not really impacted by it, read the paper. Read a local paper. Read a you know, national paper. And ask God to show you what's wrong with the world. Ask God to break your heart with what breaks his heart. And the final thing is begin today. Like start now. Start something new, whatever. Join something. Take a small step. That's great. Now, whatever way we choose to proceed as followers of Jesus, um, pursuing justice is going to require conscious choice, sacrifice, and determination. Because the pervasive wind of teaching in the world are the devil kind of sowing seeds in our brains and our own selfish motives is to do otherwise. It's very strong. So may I encourage you, um, this is the way I think is least difficult in moving forward. And I don't want to say the easiest because it's not easy. It's the least difficult. But if you want to um, start pursuing justice and being empowered and have your thoughts and hearts changed, 
then you need to and I need to walk as closely to God as possible. We really do. To be daily um, walking so closely with God that his heart is influencing our heart more than the rest of the world, more than what, you know, everything else is crying out for us to be changed and do. So to be walking so close that his heart is affecting yours more than the, the, the wind of teaching that just comes at us. So just, if you don't do this, this is like the ABC of following Jesus. If you don't do that, these, some of these things, you're, kind of, you're not going to really be able to do it. Um, daily surrender your life to God. Wake up in the morning and say, my life is yours again. Please take my life. Surrender your life daily. Give it over. Then immerse yourself. Become a, a daily student of God's word so that you can hear what God, what God thinks about the world and how it operates. To more and more make prayer this major component of your day. To meet with other believers so that God is influencing you through the, the church. Come to church regularly. Be here, waiting. Daily, not daily, but like meet up with Christians. Like you need a, like I'm sure you'll know at the end of church tonight, you have these amazing conversations, but they're all pretty quick, 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 so you have a nice week. You need some deep, we need deep personal connection, vulnerability in closer intimate community. And that's small group. That's just, that's just a, a name for where people can get together and just kind of hang out and rub shoulders and pray and read the word and inspire each other. But all these things, they're doing it so that your heart can be influenced more by God's heart. So you can walk closer to God and he can really be just sharing with you about what he finds important. You know, we become the company we keep. So if you don't do that, you become someone else's company. Spend time with God, long for change, and God will change you. It's a journey we're on. You know, we're not starting out perfect. We never will be perfect until we meet Jesus and we're just changed forever. But it's a journey of growth, people. It's a journey of just growing more to become like Jesus, to have hearts and minds that reflect his view of the world. True faith, pursuing justice. Now I began tonight about, um, talking about this massive problem in the world and just the presence of it in, you know, amongst Indigenous Australia in this Sydney Oasis Youth Refuge, you know, in Albury with Donga, in the whole world. It's just present everywhere. And I reckon we can just stop and go, man, it's too big. I can't do anything. Um, but we can. One person can make a massive difference. You can make a difference. We can make a difference. And can you not only imagine that if, if one of us did it, but if us as a community just went, I'm going to value people like God values them, and I'm going to pursue justice in the world. And I'll tell you what, the people that would be practically in physically impacted by the love of God through believers would be amazing. And our verbal testimony about Jesus Christ, that you can have eternal life through faith in his name, that would reach people that we do not reach already. Mission, pursuing justice. Why don't we pray? Father God, we... Um, want to come before you and acknowledge that uh, that we are uh, people who uh, most of us here Lord Jesus we know you we know your love for us and the way that we have been justified in your presence through Jesus and God we want to reach out we want to pursue justice and Father I pray that for each and every one of us Lord you would burden us with your heart that we may be people who value people like you value them. Lord Jesus, um, we don't want to be an unrepentant Judah. We don't want to be unrepentant, Lord. Father God, we just 
We are sorry for the way we just uh, don't live the way you want us to. And Father God, we ask that you would give us your heart. Lord, that you would empower us by your spirit. Lord, that you would help us have your heart and you would help us be moved to action, God. Father, that justice may begin with us and people, through a word spoken about you, may come to salvation in your name. Father, thank you for your word, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight, whether as you've witnessed the testimonies, you've realised God's saying, it's time for you. Or uh, as you've heard Phil speaking and uh, you've sensed God speaking to you and saying, yeah, this is for me. And I just would want to encourage you in these next few moments to just respond to God. Respond to what he's saying to you. And it might be that in this time um, you might just agree that you are going to respond and there's just a few things that we would like to encourage you to, to do in these moments. There's blue cards, and we just love you.